The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Francine, we are going to start this week unpacking this rather epic clash of the titans that's been unfolding on financial markets the last few weeks. India's Adani Group says it's exploring legal action against a U.S. short seller, Hindenburg Research. Billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman says he found a Hindenburg Research report alleging fraud and manipulation at Adani highly credible. Gautam Adani's businesses have now lost $108 billion in a week after allegations of fraud and stock manipulation leveled by short seller Hindenburg. I mean, really one of the most intriguing financial stories of the decade about an Indian business empire that had over $100 billion, $100 billion, Dave, wiped off its stock market. So it all kicked off on the 24th of January. A U.S. activist short seller by the name of Hindenburg Research released this bombshell report. Just a reminder, you know, an activist short seller uh, bets on the prices of assets falling and then they go public with their claims to try to actually make that happen. And it certainly has worked in the case of Hindenburg. Now, Adani Group has denied the claims. The Hindenburg research basically alleges that Adani Group companies had engaged in decades of brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud. It's also claimed its companies had a substantial debt, which put the entire group on a precarious financial footing. Yeah. And the actual quote from Hindenburg is quite remarkable. And this is a quotation. They've called Adani the largest con in corporate history. Um, as you said, Francine, of course, Adani vigorously um, denies those claims. But still, investors fled. And I have to say, it's a pretty damning report. And Adani appears at some point, a couple of days after these allegations, in a video posted online to reassure investors, everything will be fine. For me, the interest of my investor is paramount and everything is secondary. The fundamentals of our company are very strong. Our balance sheet is healthy and assets robust. Despite that attempt at reassurance, within just a week, the total market value of the group of Adani-related companies, and they've got holdings across a whole range of industries from energy to construction, uh, was wiped out by an enormous amount. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacqua. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast, connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the city of London. This week, we delve into the wider ramifications of the Adani Hindenburg clash. Nearly a month after the release of the report, what's been the fallout for credit markets? Yeah, what would it mean for the investor makeup in the region now and in the future? And could this clash spur a wider short seller revival? With us, Shirley Ren, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering Asian markets, and Sri Vidya Bhaktavasalam, global executive editor overseeing global finance, investing, and legal coverage. Sri, could you start also just by explaining a little bit about Adani and who they are and why they're so important? I mean, I remember when I worked uh, in Mumbai a decade ago, you know, it was a big company, but it wasn't as significant as it is now. Tell us a little bit about the history of this organization and of Adani himself. 
Adani has burst into sort of the consciousness in the past decade, as you say, it's a it's a good time frame to look at in terms of how you've seen this coming of age, uh, if you will, of his empire and his group of companies. You know, he was considered one of India's original coal barons. So his his DNA very much comes from the, the commodity side. He hails from Gujarat and one of the Western states in India, where uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi also hails from. And that's a key connection, isn't it? That provenance of, of, of Gujarat and their fates have been slightly entwined, have they not? That's correct. And and in recent years, Adani has sort of come to be viewed as a proxy in a way for this rising India, this emerging India. And he has very closely hewed to Modi's own kind of vision for, you know, the, the ascent of this economy in a, in a very big way. In recent years, you know, he has also branched out into everything from green energy to, you know, more sustainable ways of uh, doing business in, in a departure from his roots uh, on the commodities side. And, and now, of course, you know, there was one point before Hindenburg's report became public when he was on track to uh, be one of the world's richest men. He was Asia's richest man. And, and you saw all of that sort of coming, crashing down fairly quickly in the wake of Hindenburg's report. So, surely, what is Hindenburg accusing Adani of? So, there are two things, but the most important allegation is uh, stock manipulation. According to India's security, security laws, a stock has to be delisted if uh, uh, less than 25% of its total shares are free flow, basically are not controlled by company insiders. And uh, what Hindenburg was saying was that, uh, you know, like the Adani family is using obscure uh, overseas investment vehicles to buy into its stocks. And uh, in effect, uh, they control more than 75% of its shares and that uh, they use that controlling power to manipulate the stock prices to let them soar by, I don't know, two, 300% a year. And um, that's the most uh, striking accusation. They also talked about inter-corporate loans, which is actually pretty common among Asian conglomerates. So what it means is that if you're a big conglomerate, you use company A's cash flow to pump into company B. So they also talked about a little bit about that. I mean, so this narrative, I mean, it's so astonishing. If anyone hasn't been following this again, anyone listening to this, as Sri was mentioning, the enormous creation of wealth around this company over a decade, tracking the rise of Modi and really kind of mirroring the emergence of India as, a, as an enormous world economy, then to sort of pop and burst like this. And of course, the name Hindenburg is named after the, the famous exploding airship. And that's really what's happened here. So not only this record ex- creation of wealth, but then the destruction in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's, it's, it was more than $100 billion of value evaporated. How is that being seen in India, Sri? Because if Adani mirrored the rise of India, is this attack and this implosion of wealth uh, being seen as a real attack on India as a whole? Some elements of that narrative have been apparent. I mean, Adani's own press releases and uh, the statements coming out of the company have perceived this as an attack on India. There is a sense in those uh, statements that he is being unfairly penalized. He has, by the way, uh, rejected and refuted all of these allegations. So there's very much a sense in, in some camps, this is a short seller 
with some kind of a, an agenda to bring down the Indian sort of story. But there is a counter narrative to that. Over the years, there have been several scandals. And, you know, I would say compared to other investors, uh, it's a sophisticated base of retail investors. And I think there is some actual worry playing out. A lot of wealth is tied up, not just Adani's personal wealth, but retail wealth is tied up in the Indian stock market. So there is a good deal of worry about how this might affect personal retail wealth. Shuli, you've been writing a lot about the parallels with Evergrande. This is the big Chinese giant that really rippled through global markets. Is it worse than Evergrande? I mean, can you actually really draw parallels between the two? I'm pretty sure we can draw the parallel. For instance, uh, India's financial regulators have been coming out talking about the Indian banking system's exposure to Adani. And then State Bank of India, Access Bank, all these state-owned banks that are coming out to talk about the exposure. And we saw that with Evergrande already, right? And then Evergrande was seen as symbolizing China's financial risks, while Adani tells the tale of an aggressive, over-leveraged conglomerate with poor corporate governance, and people are starting to see that in some other Indian conglomerates. Um, But I think uh, in in one sense, Adani is a little bit worse than Evergrande in that it has managed to attract very prime blue-chip global investors, whereas Evergrande, everyone knows what Evergrande was, and the uh, surrounding Evergrande over the years was uh, basically speculative hedge funds and uh, uh, special situation distress funds. So I think uh, this Adani fallout is a big wake-up call for global uh, investment banks and the blue-chip credit funds. I think that's really interesting, Shidi, because of course there's a retail story for the investor in India in this kind of nationalist line. But this company was so big that its investors were all around the world. And you've written a fascinating piece about how this whole process means their investor base is shifting. And we're seeing now in the havoc amid those the big sell-off in the shares, different sorts of investors coming in. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it means for the company's future? Adani is uh, uh, in many ways much better than Evergrande Group in soliciting global funds. I'm just reading off Adani's financial statement. That's what the company said themselves. As of March 2022, out of its long-term debt, 18% came from global international banks. 37% came from bonds. And most of that is dollar bonds, also foreign investors. Uh, Evergrande never had any of that. For instance, the global investment banks gave Adani about 1.5 billion in margin loans that are uh, pledged by, uh, that are backed by uh, Adani's various uh, stock holdings. And the, the company had to buy back a lot of that. And then also last year, Adani bought Cosim's Indian cement business for for 6.5 billion US dollars. And then the company only came up with 1.5 billion of cash. And the rest of it was financed with rich loans and mezzanine loans arranged by global banks from like uh, Barclays uh, to Deutsche Bank to uh, Citigroup. So these banks actually have a lot more exposure, relatively speaking, to Adani than China Evergrande Group. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Shri, is there something that could be systemic here? 
at this point, I surely pointed out there's, you know, it has been easy to pinpoint where the pain has been. There are a handful of global banks that are caught up here. Now, the extent of the leverage and the extent of some of these margin loans isn't really fully public. And if, if it does emerge through the course of whatever investigations that take place from here on now, or further digging from the short seller that there is more leverage than we think there is, it could get larger. You already have the likes of MSCI who are contemplating removing uh, these companies, the Adani companies from its index, and that will have a ripple effect around the world. So what you're essentially seeing is a multidimensional fallout that's rippled across the globe. I mean, it's an enormous amount of money, as I said earlier, to evaporate. And I just dive a little bit more into this research outfit Hindenburg. It's run by this person called Nathan Anderson. We profile him this week in Bloomberg Business Week. I think one thing that occurs to me is, you know, this is an enormous company. And we've just been talking about investors all around the world. Why did nobody else notice this if this proves correct? He's, his 100-page report makes some very serious allegations, which have been, of course, refuted by the company. But why does it take a short seller to shine a light like this onto a company of this size? Many of these allegations have been made before investigated by um, SEBI and other authorities in India, and then subsequently dismissed. So it's not like investors weren't aware of some of these opaque vehicles that were lurking in the background. There have been stories in the press predating the Hindenburg report that talk about some of these companies that operate out of Mauritius, some of these offshore vehicles. What Hindenburg did and by, by Hindenburg's own admission in that 100-page report, they have been looking into this company for uh, upwards of two years at this point. What they did was very systematically map out some of these relationships, some of these obscure holdings, and juxtaposed it really with how much we don't know. You might recall with the case of Wirecard, uh, for instance, it did take a short seller report to not only uncover some of the uh, issues with Wirecard, but also galvanize German regulators into action. So in a way, we're seeing short sellers almost emerge as the auditors, where auditors have failed. Uh, (laughs) The short sellers are coming in and doing the auditing work for them in a way. Right. For the regulators, remember, I mean, the Wirecard cases, it was amazing. If people don't know that, this German company, and it was actually called out by a journalist as well. And the German regulator investigated the journalist at the Financial Times rather than the company or accused them of creating this rumor. So why are the regulators failing here to spot things that the short sellers are able to highlight? You know, is there a, is there a regulatory problem here? You mentioned SEBI have investigated Adani in the past, but no one seems to have taken their clearing of the company seriously, right? That's right. It it does speak to some fundamental lack of uh, either its authority that regulators have. uh, Is it resources? In the case of Wirecard, you know, there was, as you say, the regulators were happy enough to accuse journalists of market manipulation, but actively looked the other way. And and the auditors, I mean, I think something needs to be said about how strong controls are uh, around the auditors, what they look at whether there are disclosures that you know pass muster from the accounting and auditing end that really shouldn't. So it does speak to the need for a more robust uh, regulatory regime, not just in India, but just worldwide, really. Surely, where are a lot of these investors based? Are they foreign investors or are they Indian investors? 
That's the thing. I think going back to the point of why it takes this one short seller, I think、uh, the problem with、uh, Adani is that if you just look at their financing, half of the money came from international investors. And I'm sorry to say that,、uh, even though like、uh, those of us in Asia know about all these allegations like, against Adani over the years, a lot of、uh, investors、uh, based in London and New York they have been sleeping. So it's asleep at the wheel, really. Some of these, some of these people, and now, and now, right now, paying the price. <laughs> yes, yes. But some of the other investors coming in now, you, you write about Oak Tree Capital Management. They're an, you know, an opportunistic debt firm, Davidson Kempner Capital Management. They're seeing an opportunity here, right? So, is there actually an upside for for investors with the right appetite for risk here? Absolutely. I mean, they are very experienced. Both firms are very experienced、uh, in terms of uh, Asia's uh, conglomerates.、Uh, Oak Tree very famously seized a large plot of land out of、uh, China Evergrande,、uh, Evergrande Group in Hong Kong. According to my sourcing, they are engaged in a lawsuit with the Chinese government <laughs> over this. Wow. Yeah. That takes some. That takes some nerve, I think.、Uh, <laughs> yes, over、uh, over unit Tianhua Unit Group, which does a lot of President Xi Jinping's chip manufacturing, uh, uh, you know,、uh, campaign. But、uh, the point is, these are very experienced,、uh, distressed hedge funds who have the appetite and the, basically the experience to go through all of that. Whereas in the past, what we saw was, you know, like、uh, some European. Wealth funds, for instance, Norwegian's wealth fund and its biggest pension fund, they basically just check the box and say, "Okay, Adani is doing green energy. Let's buy into that." They didn't really look into it. Mr. Adani is not going to want these investors on his books, right? I mean, is he going to try and can he can he shake them off? Do you think? Well, I mean, these investors they probably just would like、uh, Adani to buy back some bonds, right? They they. Bought those bonds at seventy cents a dollar. If Adani just buys for eighty or ninety cents a dollar, they will be happy to go away. And I'm sure Adani family does not want those、uh, distressed hedge funds on their back. And truly, we had one analyst say that you know this Adani crisis could actually derail Modi's economic vision. I mean, that's that's a pretty punchy headline. Do you agree? I think so. I mean, the way I see Adani is, you know, the whole industrial ambition is the public-private and、uh, partnership, right? Like with China, basically, it's all public. The Chinese government took on a lot of that on its uh, uh, state-owned companies' books. Whereas in India, there is a public-private partnership. But for for this partnership to work, the the Modi and the Adani they have to get along, right? And Adani cannot fail. And at this point, the private part is failing a little bit, which means that the next question is: How will the Indian government finance all this infrastructure ambition? I do think it derails Modi a little bit. If I may jump in there, we also had a very good story that moved on how HSBC, one of the biggest global banks with a huge footprint in、um, China and Hong Kong, is betting pretty big on India right now. And so, you know, you do have to remember though that you know while some investors are looking skeptical about the India story, there are still the demographics are good. You know, the growth story, you know, some believe you know is still intact. My own sense is that there will be a churn、uh, of some sort, where you'll see, you know, a more skittish base of investors、uh, say that this is too much risk for them, and the due diligence isn't worth it, worth their while in terms of how how deeply they have to drill down. You may find、uh, investors with、um, appetite for risk spot this as a bit of a、uh, an opportunity for them. Yeah, and perhaps is this a sign of kind of the maturing. Indian market in terms of global investors, you know these sorts of things happen all around the world. You mentioned Wirecard, which was a German scandal.、Uh, many examples 
of course, in the United States. So maybe uh, I mean, investors around the world, you mentioned that they were maybe asleep at the wheel. Are people now just getting a bit smarter about how to invest the Indian market? I think so. I think uh, some of it is also they they got scared by China by China's uh, uh, drama last year, right? So they decided to flee flee China, and then India was a very natural place for them to go to. And uh, but the India uh, assets valuation has always been very high, right? But so they're willing to overlook a lot of the perhaps negative aspect, like uh, say corporate governance, that just falling to whatever whatever valuation. And at this point, it's a wake up call. They were saying, okay, we will still look at India, but we need to be mindful of all the pitfalls as well. What kind of backlash are we seeing in India? I know there's there's been a couple of media companies saying, look, the humbling of Adani will be a test for the country's capitalism. Does this make or break the country? Uh, Adani had his own rebuttal, upwards of 400-page uh, rebuttal to the Hindenburg report. And I will quote from that statement. Uh, the statement says, this is not merely an unwarranted attack on any specific company, but a calculated attack on India, the independence, integrity, and quality of Indian institutions, and the growth story and ambition of India. So you're very much seeing this through the lens of nationalism. Um, so this is very, very deeply wrapped up with that sort of rhetoric at this point. The government itself has not said anything about this. They've, they've remained somewhat silent. The opposition has raised some questions in the parliament about this uh, unfolding affair. So there, there is a sense, though, that from here on now, especially if the fallout gets uh, worse, there is a sense that there's more money to be lost here and there's uh, some sort of undermining of the, the case for India's growth story you will start to see that rhetoric start to change. I guess the question is, at what point will the Indian regulators as well as the Indian government say, this is this is enough, uh, we need to kind of address this head on? Shri, just so to sum it up, what, what do you think the exposure of London is to Adani, either through the investor base, or also we saw Boris Johnson's brother having to resign from a firm that was linked to Adani? So if you look at it, there are three ways. So you have the the banking exposure, you have the investment exposure, and then you have like exposure that many people who are prominent in the city or move in uh, prominent circles uh, may have to the Adani group of companies. On the banking side, I'd say you know you have Barclays, Standard Chartered. Uh, you know, a lot of these banks have already been named as uh, banks who've done business with uh, Adani's group of companies in the past. And what this is going to test is their appetite to come back. We're already seeing some uh, banks say that they don't want to be expanding these lending relationships. And so I think you will start to see many of these banks back away from that sort of risk. On the investment side, you do see firms like Jupiter, for instance, they came back during that a share offering that was subsequently withdrawn. So there is still appetite among some of these UK institutions to invest in some of these securities. When it comes to these other entities that are incorporated in the city, Joe Johnson stepped down as director of this uh, firm called Elara Capital. Not much is known about this firm. It's uh, It builds itself as a, a full-service investment bank. It has raised funds for several Indian companies. 
It says that it has offices in New York, Singapore, many other locations around the world. And you have other personages attached to this, including Lord Meghnad Desai, who's an Indian-born academic and a former Labour Party politician. He is also a director of Elara. So there's a lot more connections in time that will surface um, about uh, who Elara Capital is and um, what exactly the connection is uh, for this entity with um, other Adani companies. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacroix. And it was produced by Summer Sardi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Shudi Wren and Sri Vidya Bhaktivatsalam. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.